Father, I just thank you for this time that you give me the opportunity to speak, God, and all these opportunities that you've laid before me. God, I am not worthy to speak before anyone about your word. I am prone to make mistakes, prone to be wrong, prone to see things incorrectly, God. But I pray that you will keep me from error, God, that you will guide my words today, God. They will be in agreement with what your word says, God. I pray that you will speak through me through this passage, God, that Christ would increase, that I would decrease, and that your name would be holy and above all things, God. I pray that you would teach us how to properly love one another, how to agree amidst disagreements among the body of Christ. I pray that we will take the example of Christ and what is written here in Romans 14, God, and we will apply that to our lives, God. We will live that out, and we will learn how to be conformed to the image of Christ and to your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So it says in Romans 12, 1 and 2, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. So since we have seen the mercies of God played out through the gospel of Christ and through the theology of Paul in Romans, since we know that we're justified by Christ alone and faith alone, and since we know that dependent not on our own choice but on the sovereign election of God, and since we know the mercies of God, we are now called to live out this gospel and to present our bodies as living sacrifices, as our worship to God. What Paul is showing us here is that theology is practical. It, theology shows us the need to live like Christ and gives us a basis for our hope in Christ. So what we have seen, we've seen Paul shift from his theology in Romans 1 through the end of 11 to theology lived out in Romans 12 and Romans 13. So in Romans 12, we saw that we all have different gifts that benefit the body of Christ. And we saw what marks a true Christian will have via the work of God changing their hearts. And then in Romans 13, we looked at how we live as a living sacrifice and submission to the government and how we worship God by being subject to God's ministers or in defying government when they become tyrants or disobey God. Also in Romans 13, uh, closing Romans 13, Paul talked about true Christian love, which is fulfilling the law. So what Paul does, he goes from living out the Christian salvation in response to government then to living this out in reference to loving one another. And then starting in chapter 14, he gives a practical example of what this Christian love looks like within disagreements within the body of Christ. So this begins a new section for Paul here in Romans 14, but it's still a continuation of showing us what the gospel looks like lived out. And this new section focuses on Christian liberty and Christian conscience. And the section will be from chapter 14 until verse 13 and chapter 15. So the question Paul will be addressing once again is Christian liberty, Christian conscience, and what is and what isn't prohibited in the scriptures. So as we all know, Christian liberty, or what you can and cannot do in Christ, has been a humongous issue from the advent of Christ to our modern day. What are, the question is, what are Christians called to do with secondary or tertiary side issues? And how can we love one another despite 
our disagreements on certain topics. Like, can Christians smoke? Can we drink? Can Christians get tattoos? Can Christians curse? Or how do we relate to the Sabbath? These are all questions of Christian liberty and Christian conscience. What do we do with issues like these? And how do we live in Christian fellowship? And how do we fulfill the law through loving one another despite these disagreements? So Paul's focus in the first four verses I want to be covering today is issues of the dietary law in the Old Testament. Because this is a huge issue in the first century, and what he's getting at is, how do we love one another despite this issue? But his focus, once again, is not to focus on these dietary laws, not focus on this issue, but his focus is, how do we love one another despite issues like this? So, when it comes to Old Testament dietary laws, a lot of us may see them as irrelevant, or who knows, because most of us don't really know much about that. We don't live in a Jewish context, or pagan Gentiles who've been brought in. But there really is, in these four verses, great application and theology in these verses. So that's my task today, by God's grace, to unveil what Paul meant by these words under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Because, as we all know, it says in 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17, it says, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped, for every good work. So my goal in this message is that it will be profitable to you, that it will teach you, that it will prove you, that it will correct you, and that you'll be trained in righteousness and in godliness. So go ahead if you're not already there, turn to your Bibles in Romans 14 verses 1 through 4. I'll be using the New American Standard for my message today. It's kind of funny. I brought my ESV because I forgot I wasn't using the NASV. But I'll read it off of this computer. So Romans 14, 1 through 4. It says, Now accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. One person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. The one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat, and the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats, for God has accepted him. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master, he stands or falls, and he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. So my first point starting out in verse 1 will be titled, Acceptance, Not Judgment. Acceptance, Not Judgment, verse 1. So it says, Now accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment, on his opinions. I think the ESV says not to, for, what does it say? Not to quarrel over opinions, but I like the idea of you're accepting this person not for the purpose of. So you're bringing them in for the purpose of, to pass judgment. So what Paul does here, he separates opinions and he separates convictions of fellow Christians as between the weak brother and the stronger brother. And he says, now accept the one who is weak in faith. So Paul here in verse 1 is writing to the stronger brother, and he says that acceptance is required. It's an imperative command. It's not an option to accept your brother. It is required by you and by God in this text to accept your brother on issues of Christian conscience. So those who are stronger in faith are not to pass judgment on the weaker brother because of his opinion, which this does imply that these opinions, their opinions, they're not rooted in Scripture, but they're his mere thinking, 
So that's important to note. So it's not, the foundation is not scripture, it's an opinion. So when Paul uses the term weak, it denotes a sickness or a feebleness, like a diseasedness of his faith. It's weak, it's diseased. The weaker brother is someone who is, he's new to the faith, or he's someone who is clinging to tradition. So what the stronger brother must realize is that he was once in that same position. And what was helpful in about the study we did yesterday was to note that this is still faith. It's just a weak faith. So he's not apostate, but he should be treated as a brother, as someone we love. He's not some cult leader or he's not a false brother, but he is your brother, so he should be treated as such. So he's just someone in this context who he's held on to his tradition and he's to be taught and loved and accepted. For example, if we had someone come to our church from a dispensational background, and what would our Christian duty from these verses to be? It would not be to pass judgments. What that I know is like, well, he's a dispensational. We should, I mean, look at that guy. It's like, what are you, what are you doing here, guy? But no, it should be to, to love him and to accept him and bring him in. And acceptance doesn't look like as defined by our world, but it looks like as defined biblically to reprove, to rebuke and exhort with complete patience and with love. And that's not saying to agree with their unbiblical opinions, but to say, this is my brother in Christ. I should not shun him, or as I like to say, I should not smite him but for his opinions, but try to bring him to agreement with the scriptures. Not to agree with me, but to agree with what the word of God says. So this leads me to my next point, which is titled, the crux of the controversy in verse 2. This is the issue Paul is facing here in this context. So it says in verse 2, One person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. So, to our modern Western minds, without a Jewish context, this verse will make zero sense. Are they saying vegetarians are prohibited? Can they? We're not allowed to eat vegetables? I mean, I think it's a given that people that only eat vegetables have to be weak in some sense. So, I mean, is that what is that what Paul's getting at here? And I think we can say absolutely not. So what I want to do is briefly look at the context of what Paul is talking about here so we can understand the issue that Paul was facing in Romans 14. So, once again, verse 2 says, One person has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. So, Paul begins with the stronger brother in verse 2, that he contrasts his faith with the one who is weak in faith. One person has faith that he may eat all things, meaning that he may eat all things that were once prohibited by the Old Testament dietary restrictions. And the stronger brother is inferred that he knows that these things are no longer binding on us. Christ has abrogated those dietary laws. So what I want to look at is, what is the purpose of these dietary restrictions? And why was this an issue in the first century? So if you could turn with me to Leviticus 11. Leviticus 11. So if we just graze through Leviticus 11, we see this long, exhaustive list of what Israel could and could not eat. They couldn't eat certain birds. They couldn't eat camels. 
or geckos or swarming things. But why, why would God do that? Why would he make it a point to write in his word, hey, you can't eat camels and geckos? Like, what, what is the point in that? So what I want to do briefly is look at verse 44 and 47 of Leviticus 11. This is a summary of all God has said up to this point. It's this long list, dietary restrictions, and then he sums it up and said, here's the point. Here's why you're doing this. He says, starting in verse 44, he says, For I am the Lord your God. Consecrate yourself, therefore, and be holy, for I am holy. You shall not defile yourself with any swarming thing that crawls on the ground. For I am the Lord who brought you up out of the land of Egypt to be your God. You shall therefore be holy, for I am holy. This is the law about beasts and birds and every living creature that moves through the waters, every creature that swarms on the ground, to make a distinction between the unclean and the clean, and between the living creature that may be eaten and the living creature that may not be eaten. So the whole point of all these lists of dietary restrictions was because God called Israel to live differently than the other nations. He consecrated them. He separated them. That was the whole point of the dietary restrictions, was a consecration of God's people from the pagan nations. So this seems to us as a, a good thing. God did this, so it was good. So, so why all of a sudden is this abrogated in the New Covenant? And the people who hold to these standards in Leviticus, they're now labeled as the ones who are weak in faith. So one way, really briefly, I don't want to, spend too much time talking about dietary restrictions. But one way that we know is because of Acts chapter 10. So if you could turn with me in your Bibles to Acts chapter 10. Be starting in verse 9, going through 16. It says, The next day as they were on their journey and approaching the city, Peter went up on the housetop about the sixth hour to pray, and he became hungry and wanted something to eat. But while they were preparing it, he fell into a trance and saw the heavens opened up, and something like a great sheet descending, being let down by its four corners upon the earth. And it were all kinds of animals and reptiles and birds of the air. And there came a voice to him, Rise, Peter, kill and eat. But Peter said, By no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything that is common or unclean. And the voice came to him again. This happened three times, and the thing was taken up at once to heaven. So this is Peter's vision in Acts 10. Christ has made all things clean via his death and resurrection. Well, you can also, you don't have to turn there. In Mark 7, 14, um, Jesus talked about, he came, it says, and he called the people to him again and said, hear me all of you and understand. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And then to continue on, it says, Thus he declared all foods clean. So the very words of Christ here. So in the inspired acts and the words of Christ, all these foods are now clean. So in Paul's context, in a Jewish context, if you're a Jew and you're under the tradition of not eating unclean foods, it would be extremely hard to just all of a sudden have this radical change. You're now not allowed to eat the things that you weren't allowed to eat. So 
The strong believers are primarily Gentile believers, and the weak believers in this context are primarily Jewish converts. Because the Gentiles didn't know the Old Testament, so it wasn't a problem for them, all these dietary restrictions. They were pagans out in the woods. They didn't know about all these restrictions. They they whatever. I mean, they don't they don't care about those things. So, this person who is weak in faith, he goes past these dietary restrictions laid out in Leviticus and Deuteronomy. But once again, Paul's focus and reason for writing this was not to talk about dietary restrictions, so that will not be my focus either. And there are plenty of passages if you want to go study dietary restrictions in your free time. So. Paul's focus is on how Christians love one another despite and amidst disagreements such as this one. Which brings me to the, really the crux of the matter. In verse 3, through the middle of verse 3. So, it says, The one who eats is not to regard with contempt the one who does not eat. And the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who eats. So, the one who eats, meaning the one who eats all things. Once again, the stronger brother. The brother who understands the work of Christ in regard to the ceremonial dietary laws. So the one who eats is commanded to not hold in contempt or to shame the other brother. And the one who does not eat is not to judge the one who does not eat. For example, in today's church, if we had someone who wanted to drink alcohol. And then we have a brother who does not want to drink alcohol. It is required by these texts that we behave in a certain way. The one who believes that he can drink alcohol is told that he should not judge the one who believes that he cannot drink alcohol. And the one who believes he cannot drink alcohol should not judge the brother for drinking alcohol. There's a sense of Christian liberty and conscience that must be followed and a behavior that is required by this text. We do not need to be dogmatic or strict about these secondary tertiary issues. And once again, this does not mean to not reprove your brother and not stand firm in the truth, but it just means you're not to pass judgment upon them or to shun them for their conscience. So when it comes to issues of conscience, we must realize that God is the Lord of the conscience and not us. I like the example that uh, Corey gave yesterday in our meeting. He said if one Christian wants to read Harry Potter, it's within their realm of Christian liberty to do so. And if someone says they don't want to read Harry Potter, it's also within their realm of Christian liberty to not do so. But it's required, once again, issues like this by the text to not judge the brother. Well, he's being legalistic. He won't even read Harry Potter or he is reading Harry Potter, all that witchcraft stuff. There's there's a balance and a fine line that must be followed. And we have Christian liberty in Christ. So the heart of what Paul is addressing here is the attitudes despite disagreements. So when it comes to issues like food or Harry Potter or tattoos or drinking, we must realize that the kingdom of God does not revolve around issues like this, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit, which Paul says later in Romans 14. So we need to take heed to the words of Paul and to the words of Christ. Turn with me really briefly to Matthew chapter 7. Matthew 7, 1 through 5. It says, starting out in verse 1, Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. 
and with the measure you use it, you will be measured to you. Why do you speak? Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, "Let me take the speck out of your eye," when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite! First, take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. So, as we know in this text, which is a common misquoted text, we know that once the speck or the log is out of our eye, we're called as Christian, as our duty, to go to our brother and say, well, you have a sin in your life. You need to repent for this. So once we're being non-hypocritical in our judgments, we have a Christian duty to go to our brother and say, look, here's the problem. We can fix this. You need to repent. But Paul does not follow the same pattern in Romans 14. Because when it comes to issues of Christian conscience, we do not follow this pattern. We are called to accept our brothers who differ in faith, but what we must understand is the basis for our acceptance of our brother. Which leads to my fourth point, starting at the end of verse 3, going through verse 4. This point is called, God accepts him, so should you. So the end of verse 3, going through 4. It says, For God has accepted him. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls. And he will stand, for the Lord is able to make him stand. So these verses are most likely, most commentators think it's addressed to the weaker brother. And this verse really echoes what is said in James 4, 11 through 12, which says, Do not speak evil against one another, brothers. The one who speaks against a brother or judges his brother speaks evil against the law and judges the law. But if you judge the law... You are not a doer of the law, but a judge. There is only one lawgiver and one judge. He who is able to save and to destroy. But who are you to judge your neighbor? Man has propensity to take the place at God's judgment seat. We want to be the one in that position. And if God has accepted someone, what right do we have to pass judgment on his opinions or to quarrel with our brother or sister? As we learn at the end of chapter 13, to walk properly, one must not be quarreling. We're told to put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. We're not to pass judgment on our brother, and especially in issues of eating and drinking. There's no place for that. And this by no means downplays these types of issues, and they do exist. And we saw that this morning in Philippians. There's the call to agree in Christ in Philippians. But it is important to understand the point that Paul is making here. He's saying that sanctification is a progressive thing. Growing to be more like Christ is a process. It's like leaven and a lump of dough. And every Christian in this room can testify to this. This is true, and not just issues of godliness and holiness, but in our theology. Hopefully, by God's grace, our theology is in a progressive state to agree more and more with the scriptures. And if you're a stronger brother in this room, you must realize that you were once a weaker brother who is who is in the process of being conformed to the image of Christ. However, while we are still in the state of having weaker faith, we must love and accept our brother and understand that each brother must do what he believes that God is calling him to do in his conscience 
and to lead someone away from their conscience is very, very dangerous game. So also within this, it is important to note that our conscience is either informed by the word of God or it isn't. It's either informed by the word of God or it's informed by our traditions, which we see here with the weaker brother. It's also important to note the effect that judgment, passing judgment has on our brothers. If we skip down to Romans 14, 10 and 3, 10 through 13, it says, But as for you, why do you judge your brother or sister? Or you as well? Why do you regard your brother or sister with contempt? For we will all appear before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, As I live, says the Lord, to me every knee will bow and every tongue will give praise to God. So then, each one of us will give an account of himself to God. Therefore, let's not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother or sister's way. We will be judged by God for our judgment, but we will also be God judged by what this does to our brother. It's a stumbling block to judgment on these secondary issues. What Paul is really getting at and hitting home here is the call to be humble, the call for Christian humility. The call to realize that we are not the standard, but God is the standard. If God accepts him, so should we. Also, turn back with me two chapters to Romans 12. Romans chapter 12. Starting in verse 3. It says, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body, we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Let us use them, if prophecy in proportion to our faith. So that's what I want to emphasize. It's the proportion to our faith. How does one not think more highly of himself than he ought? To think according to the measure of faith that God has given you, in proportion to your faith. The stronger brother must not judge and look down the nose of the weaker brother, but must humble himself, realizing that he will stand before the judgment seat of God. And as well for the weaker brother, he must not pass judgment on the stronger brother for living out his Christian liberties, which come from his freedom in Christ. We are not the standard, but God is. And if God accepts him, once again, who do we think we are, as either the stronger brother or the weaker brother, to judge our brother and to not accept him? So, in conclusion, since we have seen the mercies of God played out through the gospel of Christ and through the theology of Paul in Romans, since we know that we are justified by faith alone in Christ alone, and we know it depended not on our choice but the sovereign election of God, since we know the mercies of God, we are now called to live as a living sacrifice, as our worship to God through the way we love our brother amidst disagreements on certain secondary issues. Christ is the standard and we are not. What Christ has accepted, we should accept. What Christ has atoned for, we should love. And how do we properly put on the Lord Jesus Christ? And what does this look like? It looks like us loving our brother. It looks like us not passing judgment on our brother. And it looks like us not looking down the nose of other believers 
who, whose conscience is leading them in a way maybe we would not have, have gone down. And some issues are not compromisable, but some issues of opinion are things that should not separate and divide the body of Christ. Christ will call them to stand. Christ is the judge, and Christ is the ultimate example of how we humble ourselves and truly love our brothers and sisters in Christ. So may we take heed to the warnings of God, the example of Christ, the writings of Paul, to live as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, even within disagreements within the body of Christ.